0: When a man was crucified, they beat him nearly to death, dragged him to a common thoroughfare called Golgotha, much like a Walmart parking lot, and they would drive spikes through his hands and feet. And as he slowly suffocated and dehydrated, the mentally ill and criminals would mock him and spit on him, and the birds would pick at his flesh, and he would beg to die. And when he finally did, they would throw him in the city dump. This is what they did to God for you and for me. This is how badly God was offended by our sin. So ends that quote from a friend of mine. Of course, there are a few differences with our Lord. He wasn't thrown in a city dump, but you're... Typical Crucifixion victim was it was a scandal it was uh, It was horrific and those words hardly begin To suggest to us how offensive How offensive it was how shameful how painful And one of the reasons I wanted to read that Obviously today is a day where we know Christ is risen but we come With laser focus to think a little more Altogether about the fact that almost exactly 2000 years ago at this very hour, our Lord, the maker of all things, was hanging on a Roman cross for us. To focus on that hinge point of history together for just a few minutes. We've been in Revelation and so I thought uh, maybe focusing on uh, the gospel that the same author of Revelation wrote and just picking out a few things together. Another reason I wanted to read that. One, because we, in a, we're in a post-Christian culture. We used to be a Christian culture. The West was once Christian, and we still have residual effects of that, many of them. But there's still a little bit of residual respectability about Christianity. And, and um, there, was no, there was nothing respectable, first of all, about the first Christians. Secondly, uh, about the way that our Lord died for us. Um, So getting back to a bit of the the grit uh, of what he did for us, what was required um, as payment for our sin. But also uh, the first thing I um, I want to point out out of three points just kind of lifted from this text in John that Nathaniel just read is the lamb. And one of the things that as we look at this just for a few minutes that we'll see, I think, is that all the things that we can see that happened to Jesus on the cross that are described weren't even the worst things. Not even close, as bad as they were, as horrid as they were, as painful and shameful as they must have been. They weren't even close uh, to something else that he endured that the lamb kind of touches on for us. So let's dive into that together as we look at just three things. This uh, I'm so used to saying this morning. This afternoon, for these few minutes, the lamb first. Then we'll look at the crown of thorns in particular. And then we'll, we'll look at a question. The question, I think, for us. So let's look together at the lamb. And you see the lamb being talked about by John. Jesus as the lamb in verses 31 through 37. And in particular, you see that Jesus' bones weren't broken. Now, why is that significant? Well, uh, so what was happening is that uh, the Jews were preparing to celebrate Passover the next day on Shabbat. Right? Or that night, rather. They were preparing that night, and the next day they would rest. Okay? So they're preparing, and probably a lot of commentators say killing and slaughtering lambs right, right at this very moment. As the Lamb of God, to whom all these lambs have been pointing for 14 centuries, is being slaughtered for us. That, those lambs never took away sin. Animals still don't take away sin. God is just. Animal blood doesn't do anything for him. But they pointed to the one who would. Right? And so Jesus is hanging on the cross here for us, and um, preparation for Passover needs to start happening. And, and then Shabbat comes. And on Shabbat, you can't, you can't do any, you can't be out here jeering. You can't be out here at the cross, and they need to go make their preparations. And so um, they're trying to speed things up, and they ask to speed things up. They want Jesus dead so they can all go home and start preparing for, for Passover. And so um, one of the, w- the way that you would keep yourself alive, there are a lot of indignities about the cross, many. One is that the, the victim was totally naked. There's no loincloth. That's out of respect when we see a crucifix. He was totally naked, right in front of everyone, as it were in a Walmart parking lot, Shame. Um, But also one of the indignities was that you didn't have even have the dignity of having another human being kill you. You literally sort of killed yourself in that you died by a lot of times people died by by um, asphyxiation, by not being able to breathe. And so the way that you'd stay alive is that uh, you would pull yourself up on the spikes that were in your wrists, not your hands and your wrists, because your hands would have torn and not in your feet, but in your ankles. And that you would have to push up on those literally excruciating nails, those spikes, to breathe. And then you would sink back down, and to get another breath, you'd have to do the same thing. But you couldn't push up anymore if your shins were broken. And so typically to speed something up, these centurions, these these battle-hardened soldiers, they did this in part. They waged war, they kept peace, as it were, for Rome, and then they crucified people often. They'd done this a lot. They knew exactly how to do it. And so they they went and they broke both the bones, the leg bones of the two uh, criminals who flanked Jesus. And then they weren't able to pull themselves up and then they suffocated. And that was that. Jesus, however, we don't know why, possibly because of all the suffering he'd endured previously, but also because of what I'm about to talk about, the invisible suffering that we really can't even begin to imagine that he endured for our sins. Um, He had already died. He was already dead. So when they went to to break his leg bones, they didn't need to. And they they made sure again, these were these men knew how to kill. They knew how to test if somebody was really dead. They they uh, stuck a spear in his side and John was there. John, who's writing this was there. He was Jesus' best friend. He was standing there and he says, I saw water and blood come out separately. And commentators are divided on what exactly was happening medically, but Um, One of the ideas is that they went in so deep that it pierced his heart and there was pericardial fluid because he had died. There was already a sack around his heart of fluid and it flowed out along with the pierced along with the blood uh, from the heart that had been pierced. And so Jesus was dead. They knew he was dead. They tested it. And um, but the point is they didn't have to break a bone. And what does John say here? Here's the point of this first point. The lamb. The lamb. Uh, John says that was to fulfill the scripture. And whatever you see John going through Jesus' life and death. What he's doing is he's constantly fulfilling the scripture. In other words, this is not an accident. God is using the evil and sin of man for Jesus, his own son, to be the fall guy so that he can stand between us and adjust God and take the punishment we deserve, right? And so this is orchestrated through our evil and sin to save the evil and sinful, you and me. I was listening to a radio program just today, coming in and and uh, somebody wrote a blog and he said, you know, this is the time, especially of the year that we focus as believers on the fact that the world isn't separated between good guys and bad guys. As much as I would like to think it's, I'm a good guy and other people are bad guys, Putin, you know, Hitler, others, other people, people I don't like, people I'm in an argument with maybe. It's not, the, the world is not divided. The cross shows us the world's not divided between good guys and bad guys is divided between sinners and a savior. That's all of us. And then there's Jesus, the one who didn't deserve to die, died in our place. And so um, what John says here, though, is that this, the fact that he didn't get his bones broken was a fulfillment of Scripture. And it's amazing to think about when you realize what John's saying. He's referring in, in almost almost certainly And maybe completely to one scripture. But there's one more scripture. It's a verse in Psalm 34 that he may be referring to. And it's this. Psalm 34, 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Jesus fulfills this in that it's telling us something about Jesus. He didn't deserve to die. He's righteous. The fact that not a bone was broken. And John says this is the fulfillment of the scriptures means... He didn't deserve what he got. We did. He's a fall guy. He took it in our place. But even more amazingly, and this one got me a few years ago when I realized what John's saying. He's almost certainly referring to the Passover. It's being prepared for right now by the Jews and about to be celebrated. It happened 12 12 to 14 centuries earlier. And the Passover um, is described in Exodus chapter 12. And it's where God takes his beloved people, Israel, the Hebrews, And they were slaves in Egypt, the powerhouse of the world. And he's going to bring them out with a mighty hand. And here's the thing. He says, anyone, anyone at all, there's one thing that will keep you safe from the angel of death. It's the 10th plague that's going to come and kill every firstborn. There's one thing that's going to keep you safe. And it's not being a Jew. It's not being a certain ethnicity. It's not good behavior. What's the thing that keeps you from dying? From that 10th plague, from having the angel of death take your life. It's the blood. It's the blood of an innocent lamb, a blemishless lamb, whose blood is put over the doorpost of a house. You could be an Egyptian and go and be covered in the blood and go into that house that's covered by the blood of that lamb and be safe. You can be a Hebrew and not be in a house that's covered by the blood and you will die. It's the blood alone that keeps you safe from the just wrath and judgment of God. Do you see the picture? And in Exodus twelve forty six, it says this. There are certain very specific instructions. A whole chapter is taken, really two, to describe what's to be done to the lamb and what Passover is to look like. Exodus twelve forty six reads this way. It shall be eaten in one house, the lamb. You shall not take any flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. What John is saying here is astonishing. He is saying that Jesus is that Passover lamb that his people have been eating for 14 centuries. That lamb never actually protected anyone from God's just wrath. It pointed to the one who would. For anyone who would come and hide by faith in his blood, in his life given for them. Um, That's an amazing claim that John is making here. And it's a claim consistent with Jesus' own words in life. It goes on to say, and this is what I want to wrap up this point and then move to the second, the crown. It goes on to say that actually eat it as a family, eat the lamb, let it, let it nourish you, and let it protect you. This thing that didn't deserve to die, but you do, let it protect you from death and from the judgment of God. Let its blood be over your, your life and your house. Eat it, fill yourself up with it, don't break any of its bones. Jesus fulfills that. It's kind of a strange command. But Jesus makes sense of that. He fulfills it. But then it goes on to say this. Anything that's left over, don't just toss it in the bin. What does the word say in Exodus 12? What's to be done with that lamb? Burn it up. Burn every single incinerate. Every single bit of the lamb. And what that points to is this. All the stuff that we cannot see going on with Jesus. He is not just facing excruciating pain from the physical wounds and shame from those that are dealing in him. He's having the wrath of God against evil and sin that tears apart God's world and that inflicts us all and that affects us all and that we're all guilty of. He is having that he is becoming that sin and paying for it on the cross. He is having the just wrath of God against sin and evil poured out on him, which is why he cries out, my God, my God, Eli, Eli, lama sabactani in the Aramaic, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes our place. He is burned up as it were in his humanity fully. Nothing is left such that he is so exhausted by the time they come to break his bone that they pierce his heart and he's done. He gave everything. He gave everything so that we might have life. Isn't that wonderful? So that's the lamb. The second thing is the crown. The crown of thorns has always interested me. I remember being at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and uh, getting there's there are bushes still of really sharp thorns. And you can just reach up and grab one. I don't know if it's legal if you're supposed to do that. But I brought one home. They ask you if you have tomatoes or lettuce or snails or anything. But they didn't ask about thorns. So I had a thorn. And I remember later pricking myself on They're really sharp, really sharp thorns. And they put this crown of thorns on his head to mock him, of course. But there's something, as always with Jesus, there's something so much deeper going on here. As they're mocking him, he's actually fulfilling scripture. He's actually doing something so profound and telling us about his work. Just like with the lamb, he's not just suffering with spikes through his hands. He's enduring God's wrath in your place and mine, right? With the crown as well. What are the thorns pointing to? Why is he wearing a crown of thorns? What, is there a deeper meaning there? Come on, House Church. Yes. Yes, there is. Okay, what does it take us back to? takes us back to the garden in Genesis 3. Third chapter into the Bible. Third chapter into the Hebrew Bible. We read this. Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve had gone their own way. And chosen to believe the word of the serpent. And trust themselves instead of that God has their best interest in mind. And to follow his word. And we've gone that way ever since. Genesis 3 says this. And he said to Adam. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife. And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed. Is the ground because of you? In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. In other words, this whole creation is now going to resist you. This whole creation that was going to lie supple in obeisance before you. Man who has dominion, the dominion of God as a co regent, as an image bearer of God, to spread God's image throughout all creation and to reign with Him over creation and to cultivate its potential. It's not going to resist you. But now, because of the fall, it was under your dominion, your dominion. And it will it part of the consequence of the fall will be that there will be thorns and things will resist us and we will resist ourselves. We'll have internal struggle within ourselves. We'll have struggle with other people. We'll have this fissure between us and God. There'll be this resistance. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You know, work is good. Work exists before the fall. But work is now laborious, boring, hard. It creates sweat and tears, and those are, that's not the way it should be. Um, so one of the things that Jesus is telling us in deigning to wear a crown of thorns is that he didn't just come to be Savior. He did come to be Savior, but not just. A lot of times when we think of the cross, we just think he came to save me from my sins. Yes, but that's not all. The thorns tell us that he didn't just come to be Savior, but Restorer and Recreator. What he did here is he was taking the curse of creation within himself and burying it. And when he rose, and we'll talk about this on Easter in two days, he rose the first of an entirely new creation that will not be touched by sin and evil. There won't be pain. There won't be brokenness. There won't be loss. Um, The sin of Adam brought all this brokenness and the thorns about. Christ is called the second Adam by Paul in Romans 5. And he came not just to pay the debt that we've amassed through our sins and to cleanse us from them, which he did, thank God. But to do the work necessary in his life and death to begin a new creation. And that creation begins in you the minute you trust in him. You become a new creation and that works itself out as you follow Christ by faith throughout your life. And it spreads out into everything that you touch, your work, your relationships imperfectly now. But when he comes again, perfectly. Um, let me continue with that and then move to point three. The gospel does not begin with I'm quoting here now with the crucifixion of Christ. OK, the gospel does not begin with the crucifixion of Christ. It begins with creation And moves to an explanation of how we got in the mess we're in due to the fall. Gospel then moves to redemption. The fact that God came into space and time to live for us and to die in our place. That place in the story where the Son of God becomes the sacrificial Lamb of God, slain for our sin. And finally, the gospel is the blessed hope of restoration. Um, And that's why in Revelation we see numbers of times, one of the things that happens is that God wipes away our tears. He's going to make everything sad come untrue. He's going to not just make it as if we hadn't experienced pain. He's going to actually make it better that we have experienced pain. I know that sounds like a lot, but that's one of the things that wiping away the tears shows. When When your child gets hurt and you're so sad they do, there's something so sweet about the fact that they come and cry and sit on your knee or in your lap and you get to wipe away their tears. There's something so tender about that that happened because of the pain. There's going to be a tenderness and a restoration and a reconciliation that is so sweet with the Lord and with those because of what he's allowed and because of the greatness of his redemption and the process of recreation that he started. It will be better. It will be even better than if none of this had ever happened. He's going to make it so and he's going to do it through his cross. So the fullness of the cross really isn't just our redemption, but it starts with creation. It moves to a fall. It leads to our redemption in Christ, hanging on a cross here 2,000 years ago. And But it's not over yet. The day is coming when we're going to pass through the gray rain curtain of this world um, into a far green field under a swift sunrise. Um, the words of 18th century hymn writer Isaac Watts, Joy to the World, come to mind. He says, no more let sin in sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Um, C.S. Lewis talked about it as it's going to be like um, all of human history is simply going to be the, uh, the cover and the title page of a great book. And when we enter into that new creation, one day when he returns, it's going to be like an amazing novel where every page is better than the one before it. And it just never ends. Um, All the good stuff of this life without sin, without selfishness, without brokenness, without cancer, without what kind of animal do you hate? Will snakes be there? Will crocodiles? I don't know, but they won't be able to kill us. And finally, the question, the question We've looked at the lamb. We've looked at the crown. Let's finish with the question in verse seven. In verse seven, which Nathaniel didn't read and wasn't supposed to. I'm cheating a little bit here. In verse seven, um, the Jew, it says this. The Jews, this is still during the trial. Okay. Um, by the way, his own people and the Romans conspired to kill him. We're all, he hung for all of our sin. He hung for all of our sin. <laughs> the Jews answered him we have a law and according to that law he ought to die Why? what's the charge they levy against him because he has made himself the son of God because he has made himself the son of God and I want to say in this third point the question that this is the central question has he made himself the son of God or is he the son of God that's really the question Um, If he's not the son of God, if he simply made himself to be the son of God, as they propose, and therefore, you know, breaking a law in Leviticus, uh, broke the law of God and blasphemed, claiming to be God when he was not, then he certainly deserved to die by stoning. But the Jews were under the Roman yoke, and so they could not stone, and they had to get uh, him killed by the Romans, which in their method of, of death was crucifixion. So, is Jesus the son of God, or has he made himself the Son of God. The law that he's breaking is this. It's in Leviticus twenty-four, sixteen. It says this: Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Now, did Jesus, in claiming to be God and the Son of God, did he blaspheme? Okay, he blasphemed if he claimed to be the Son of God, which he did and wasn't. So that's the question: Did he make himself the Son, or is he and was he the Son? Leviticus goes on. He shall be put to death. All the congregations shall stone him. Everyone needs to have a part in this horrific execution to feel the loss, to feel the penalty, to be warned against doing this thing again. God's name is to be uh, revered, and it has a special place. All the congregations shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. So again, the law was that if you claimed the worship due to God alone, if you claimed to be God and were not God, that's the key. And you were merely human. The just penalty was death by stoning, according to Levitical law. Crucify him or kill him at the very worst. Pity him for a deluded fool. I should say least pity him for a deluded fool who thought he was God and wasn't. But here's the point I'm making, and I'm not the first to make it. Um, the one thing we can't do is to think that he was merely a good man or a good prophet. Right. That's the one thing that who got a raw deal, as many church historians have written about some and and as many believe today, as we sort of hear given not to Jesus. He lived a great exemplary life. He didn't deserve what he got. Well, actually, the Jews were more right, perhaps than uh, than a lot of people today. If he claimed to be God, which he did and was merely a man and wasn't God and he was blaspheming, then he deserved death, according to the law. Um, C.S. Lewis frames this best and he says it best. Um, he talks about how logic forbids the one response that most of us embrace and approve of. Okay? He, says, he says this here. Um, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing. Tune in with me, and then um, I'll pull out with, a, with an afterward, and we're done. Um, I'm trying to prevent here anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say, Lewis says. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was either a lunatic, neither a lunatic nor a fiend, Lewis says. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And that's what since then has been referred to. um, by folks that have studied this as the trilemma. A dilemma is you have two options and and they leave you in a sort of quandary. You can't pick both. But here we have three. Pick one. There's really no fourth option with any integrity to it. But the fourth option is the one that we like to pick. Either he he thought he was God and wasn't. He was a madman. Don't worship that. Or he uh, knew that he wasn't God and claimed to be. Devil of hell. Or he was who he said he was. And in that case, he used our rejection of him to save us. And I want to move now in my brief. I've I've made my three points just a brief afterward as a meditation on Mary into that very thing. And that that is that we see in verses 25 and 27 as Nathaniel closed out his passage. We see here Jesus hanging on the cross and Mary, his mother, is with some other Marys. It's a popular name. then, And it still is. For this reason. Um, and he, and sh- the only disciple that I can tell, that I think we can tell, that was close to him, that was very close to him, proximate, proximately, when he was hanging on that cross was John. They were both there somewhat close, close enough to hear Jesus as, he, as he's gasping and pulling up for breath to speak this word to them. She's in so much pain right now watching her son that she perhaps alone knows with full confidence she, didn't, she, she, didn't, she was a virgin when she had Jesus. The Holy Spirit came over her, and she conceived this son whose father is God. She's his mother, fully human, fully God. And she's watching him crucified, and her world is just crumbling. She's in so much pain watching this. She must have been so confused and disoriented. All she thought she knew was upside down. Meanwhile, I'm going to press this, and then we're finished. In front of her eyes, think about it with me. Feet away from her, through the very thing causing her so much pain, her salvation was being accomplished. And can I just say that's how God works? I just want to encourage you on this day, in this season, if you are disoriented, if you're in pain, if you are hurting, you may feel like the wheels are coming off. And God is out. This, if any moment seemed like everything Mary knew was wrong... And that surely God, she knew Jesus was of God. Here he is being killed by men on a cross. Surely that he wasn't in control. This is the very moment that he's most displaying his glory, that he's using our evil to open up a wall through death, sin and evil that we can step through to save us. Right now, in Mary's moment of utter grief and most grief, God is saving her. He's doing the work to save her. And I just want to tell you, this is the way he works. And he is doing this in your life. He's got you. If indeed you are in him. Um, People scoffed at Jesus because they thought that he was suffering for his own sins. But the fact is, is in that text that Laura read in Isaiah 53, he was actually hanging on the cross, suffering for theirs. They thought God was punishing him for his sins, but God was punishing Jesus for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So his punishment brought us peace. Let me pray.